As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, if you've watched Britain Behind Bars on ITV, you may have seen Tony, knows how to tell a story. I was gripped and it's like the camera crew went in there thinking that the guards ran the place. Yeah. <laughs> But then they were coming to you like, what's going on here? They're thinking, oh, who is this guy? So we reached out. We've got him on the podcast. Thank you for coming on, Tony. That's all right, my pleasure. And... How many years have you served in prison? About nine and a half altogether. And whereabouts are you from in this country? Uh, I grew up in Feltham, Sunbury upon Thames area. Yeah. And what was that like? Back then, quite rough. Feltham especially. I mean, Feltham's quite rough now still. But, um, but we, had, then... we had Pepsi Watson on here. He was one of our first ever guests. Yeah. He did this story. It was like 30 minutes long about the abuse he suffered at Feltham. Oh, he's... And it went viral. Yeah. yeah, do you know what? I had this um, this conversation already. And um, back then, I think it was around about 1996, they had the big inquiry about the um, the officers taking bets in their little black books that they found. Yeah. Um, felt them then. It was always said, look, it's one of the roughest young offenders. And I went there. And um, to be honest, I got on all right there. Um, then I got sent to Portland. And Portland, for me, was one of the roughest young offenders I ever went to. It was, there was hardly any CCTV. There's blind spots everywhere in the prisons to fight. And um, it's, it's, that's, that, that for me was the roughest young offenders I ever went to. What was your first day in Portland like? Uh, you don't really do a lot on the, because you're on like induction, uh, on the induction wing. And they've got two wings in there called Drake and Riley. And they're like something out of the Stone Ages. <laughs> uh, and I went on there and I believe it was the third day I was there and I went down and got me a bit of cake and custard and I had, <laughs> it was really annoying because my cell was at the end of the block and when um, watch the foot tapping oh right <laughs> when you uh, when you looked out the window you could see the residential houses so literally every morning I was watching people going to work and you'd be like oh. <laughs> but um, yeah second day in I think I had two two kids come in my cell And I got the usual spill. They're nice trainers. Where'd you get them from? And I could see exactly where this going. So um, yeah. there was a lot of cake and custard on the walls that day. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I got sent to the block. Um, and I actually got released from segregation from there. The same in Park in Wales. That's another one. That's an experience. Uh, being banged up with Welsh people. They don't They don't like Londoners. So what is it with the Welsh versus London? That, oh, do you know what? Your, your guess is as good as mine. But um, I remember from the minute I got there, there's about five... Five of us from London that had all been shipped out from various other young offenders for, for fighting with officers or doing stuff wrong. And uh, this great big Welsh lad decided to give my mate a, like, a chicken wing for dinner and he wasn't happy with the size of it. And my mate came back and he was only a little fellow and he said, right, 
He said, what's this? And it was a bit strange in part because when you eat your dinner, you're all outside. It's like a communal area. Whereas in other prisons, you go back to your cells and he literally run across the, <laughs> this, this, <laughs> this hall and, and he hit this fella in the jaw. And um, I've never seen a fight like it. it. The whole prison wanted to kill us. It was literally Wales versus England. And um, yeah. Um, I'm just going to go back to then your story chronologically before we like, weave in all these 10 stories that you've, you've yeah. sent me just like we're going to try and weave them in as they happen yeah all right so um how did you slip into crime it was it was it sounds stupid now it was it was a natural progression um from where i grew up and the crowd that i was in there must have been about 20 of us that, that hung around religiously every day and it always starts off with petty crime with stealing motorbikes with stealing cars and back then, believe it or not, it was solely for fun. It wasn't for financial gain. <clears throat> um, on a weekend, a lot of people were going out clubbing. I didn't step into a nightclub until I was in my early 20s. It just didn't interest me. Oh, raving. And, no, raving we used to go. Uh, <laughs> but we were so off the nut when we went, you can't really remember it. <laughs> but um, we used to like getting cars and playing bumper cars. So we'd go and steal about 10 cars. And then the idea was the last car standing one. So you just had to drive up the normal roads and just crash into each other. Jesus. Um, and we used to have a right laugh doing it. What neighbourhood um, was this? This was oh, 15, 16. And believe it or not, to this day, there is nothing quite like a natural reaction of a member of the public sitting at a set of traffic lights with the kids in the car and someone sat next to them and someone does 30 mile an hour into the back of that car sitting Jeez. next to them and then they all have a laugh and drive off. Yeah. It must be a sight to watch. But um, that's, what, that's what it was like back then. You had to amuse yourselves. And it was just a natural progression. You you start selling the cars, you start selling the bikes. Are you um, on the drugs at this point? No. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with drugs until probably later on in my 20s. Um, not massively, uh, but obviously there's, they're always around you. You know what it's like. Everywhere you go raving, there's always drugs there. But yeah, it was just a natural progression. And then it sort of goes into, oh, we can earn money out of this. And then it was a case of you had so many people going around kicking people's doors off and tying people up. And you sort of come to realise that there's a way in which these things are done. And if you can become good at that, you can earn a lot of money. So you've done a big jump there from bumper cars to violent crime. Yeah. Um, fill in that gap for us. So from 15, I'd say from 15 to 18, a lot of it was purely fun. It was, it was for our amusement. The problem with having fun is that the police don't see it as having fun. They, see it, they can see where it's going and what it's leading to. And as much as I was told as a teenager, you're going to end up doing this. And at that age, you're like, why would I do that? And um, But it does. It naturally progresses into more serious offences. By the time I got to 18, 19, I was in my stride. It was drug dealers. It was grows. It, it, it was anything that I could earn money out of. So you're taxing drug dealers? We was taxing drug dealers. We would rob drug dealers. It, anything that I could make money out of, I would do. That, that was my outlook on it. it. There was no point in being focused on one particular thing because jobs in that area wouldn't come up all the time. So you had to basically be able to do everything at the drop of a hat. Um, the team that was around me then were very loyal, uh, very dedicated. We could get a phone call and an hour later we could be loaded up and ready to go and that's, that's the way it was. So what was your formula for taxing drug dealers? You have someone inside who did a deal first and set them up. You can do it. A lot of it will come from inside information. So someone would ring up and say, look, we think there's this in the house. We've just dropped this off. Or it could just be that someone's come to us and said, look, this geezer's just bought a rangy. He's having it off. He's never been robbed before. And you get the details. You may approach him 
and say, look, we're going to take this much off of you. If you don't, you ain't going to deal no more. Um, so you could get money out of them then on a monthly basis, which in the long run would be more lucrative. But then if someone turned around and said, right, well, there's four keys in that house, you're just going to go and take the door off. You're going to bally up. You're going to run in. You're going to take what you want um, and you're going to leave. But the difference with us is that we, well, me especially, I sort of took note of the old school villains. So there was always a code. There, that, that code is none and void now. It, it doesn't exist. But for me, I, I tended to listen to the older faces around the area and there were strict rules with if there was kids in the house, you didn't do it. If there was women in the house, you didn't do it. Fair enough, if it was a girlfriend and they was young, you might make an exception. But if it was an old bird in there or a mum, you, you, you just wouldn't do it. Um, and it's sort of, the, the way you roll into a job, it's, you've got one objective. You're not thinking of consequences. You're not thinking of what could go wrong. It's, that's in there. We're going to get it. Basically, it's mine and you've got it. And that was the attitude we had. So... Putting a belly on, smashing the door down, grabbing the keys. Sounds easy in theory, but things can go wrong. Oh, loads of things can what go wrong. What went wrong? Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of dogs. A lot of big dogs. You got um, savage. Yeah. Well, I've never been savage, but y- y- you can get a lot. I mean, it's fight or flight. Now, depending on your personality, you can be the hardest geezer on earth. If four geezers come through your door... You can sit there with all your mates till the cows come home saying, if someone come through my door, I'll do this, I'll do that. Let me tell you, if I come through your door, you have got about 10 seconds to react. And if you don't react in those 10 seconds, you are getting wrapped up. It's as simple as that. That's the way it is. It happens. It's the same if the old bill come through your door. You tell me when someone's asleep and the police take the door off, you get time to jump up, get a bat, run downstairs, and they're at the bottom of your bed. All right, mate, you're nicked. And it's, it's no different. From from going and robbing someone, it's, it's no different from the police coming through your door to a drug dealer coming through your door, or people coming to rob you coming through your door. It's exactly the same. So give us some stories of things that went wrong. Oh, things that went wrong. Um, the wrong house. It's quite quite a a normal occurrence. Get in there and it's someone sitting there like oh, I don't know what you're going on about, mate. And you're like you're lying. And they're like we ain't. And you're, <laughs> oh. uh, it's happened a few times. Um, We've had it where we've gone in and there's they've been having a party. So you've been told there's one geezer in there, possibly with a couple of his mates you go through and there's eight, nine, ten people in there. But by that point, you're committed. So there's no running in and running out because if you're running away from someone, you're liable to get something stuck in your back. So once you're in and you're committed, you have to gain control of that room as quickly as possible. Okay, describe slowly how you gain control of that room. It's being the biggest man in the room. It doesn't matter size-wise, it's... Being, I wouldn't even say being loud because I wasn't a big fan. You see all these people going through the doors and they're screaming, get on the foot. You haven't got to do that. A lot of fear comes from calmness, believe it or not. If someone come through my door screaming and hollering, I'd think you're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing, you're winging it. But if someone comes through your door and they sit on the end of your bed and they go, listen, mate, this is how it is. <laughs> they're the ones you need to be worried about because they've done it a million times over. They can't be fucked to shout. They're just going to tell you how it is. Um, but every job's different. There's, there's no two jobs that are the same. So it, there's there's a number of things that can go wrong. There's a number of things that can go wrong once you leave. I know people that have gone and done a big job and it's on gone absolutely smoothly. They get in the van and come out and they get a tug by the old bill. And then you've got ice, ice, ice bee pursuit and then you get a nick with what's in the van. So there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. All right, so 10 people in the room, you go in, you weren't expecting that. Yeah. How many people were with you? 
I'd normally go with t- in between two and four. How did you get control of that situation? What was the first thing you said? Well, the biggest people in the room you go for straight away. Go Any- for what do you mean yeah. by that? Well, you've got to grab hold of them. Straight away, you you need to put it across as quickly as possible that you're in control. And any ideas that they've got are soon put to bed. So you and your mates grab the biggest people. Grab the biggest people. And what do you say then? Sit the fuck down. This is what's happening. You can't do nothing about it. So it's either you're all going to get weighed in and you're going to get robbed anyway, or you can all just keep your fucking mouth shut and tell us where the shit is and we'll leave. It saves you getting your house trashed with us looking for it. It saves all of you getting beat up. And that's the easiest way to do it. But again, you don't know how people are going to react. How did they react? To be fair, they took it quite well. Um, they all sat down. I think we even had one made us a cup of tea in there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you, you do get ones like that. But I've been in ones before and you, you, you walk through the front door and they're, they're, they're coming out the windows, out the skylights, trying to get away. So you never know what's going to happen. Worst thing that ever happened on one of those jobs? Worst thing that's ever happened? Well, I didn't have no gear. So you and are you believing that they don't have no gear? Are you staying around? Believe it or not, you come to be very good at reading people. You, you you know when someone's lying to you. So I'm very good at knowing when someone's talking out their ass and when there's not. Now the thing with shock is that when people go into shock, they either sit there and say nothing, or you can't shut them up. But what they never do is is lie to you. It's either we're not telling you, or listen, I'll even help you pack it. It's it's either one or the other. Um, but you never know what one you're going to get. All right. So these people then, you're stepping on somebody's toes who's yeah. supplying them the drugs. What happens when it escalates to the boss? Well, this is what separates your average person to your next level up. So with us, again, I learned from the old school ones from around the area. So if there was ever a dispute, no different from the mafia in America, if you was a made guy and there was another made guy with a problem, you go on a sit down. And then they would make the decision. Over here, it's slightly different, but you still go on a sit down and you you air the problem. If you can't come to an arrangement or a solution to that problem, you need to be willing to go further than what they're willing to go. Now, all the senseless killings and stabbings we have in London at the minute, it wasn't like that when I was a kid. There wasn't a lot of people getting stabbed. There wasn't a lot of people being murdered. So if someone's just lost out on 40 grand and they think I've took it and I go on a sit down and say, well... I don't take it to give it back. This this is how it is. If their next step is then going to be, well, you're going to get it, well, the problem is you're on the meet with us. So you're either going to go in the motor and we'll take you somewhere and convince you otherwise, or you're just going to fucking swallow it. And a lot of the time, they swallow because they, they, they don't want the headache that comes with it. I mean, we don't involve people's families and things like that, but it gets to a certain point where if someone's coming after you, they don't care about your family. They don't care about your kids. So when you've got, even though I was in the wrong to be doing what I was doing, the minute I think my family's in danger, I'm going to take out whoever is in the way, whether it be your family, your boss, your sister, whoever it is to get to you, I'm going to go through until the situation is sorted. But the way it all pans out, it's a very rare occurrence when it goes to them sort of levels. Did you target certain distributors to avoid it going to those levels, people who weren't connected. Yeah, well, in the drug game, it's, it's a very small world. Everyone knows each other. Um, so obviously you would do some sort of homework before you executed the job. So you would know who they're getting it off. Um, and obviously a lot of people tick gear and then sell it and then they owe the dealer the money. Now, if the dealer's got half a brain, when he handed that gear over, he would be telling that person, if you get robbed 
or you fuck up, don't be coming running to me, you're paying me the money. So it was very rare for the buck to get passed, if that makes sense. It would be their problem and they would have to deal with it. Now, they can spend the next three weeks running around calling everyone names, saying they're going to do this, that and the other, or they can just tick some more gear and start paying off the debt, which is what a lot of people do. How many times did it escalate to the sit-down level? A few times, a few times. Um, We had... It was actually quite funny. I went to um, a birthday party uh, and we was mingling with all these celebrities and all the rest of it that was there and we ended up bumping into a premiership football player and we was uh, having a cigar out the back and he introduced us to his younger brother and it it was literally about three weeks later I got a phone call saying that this younger brother had gone to someone's house and they had taken a, a kilo of coke off someone and they wanted us to retrieve the debt. So we took the debt on we said, we know who this person is. We've got ways of getting hold of him. And we rang the Premiership footballer and his attitude was, fuck you, I ain't doing nothing. And we said, fine, sweet, not a problem. He said, I'm going to get my mate to ring you. He said, uh, and you can sort it out with him. And we're like, all right. So I won't say his name, um, but I've, I've met him. He's a nice fella, but uh, a very well-known person from Essex around about that time. Jumped on the phone and he was like, we, we need to go on a meet. We need to sort it out. And the people we took on the meet knew him. So it was kind of, you've got to pay the money back. That that was it in a nutshell. And I think about three days later, the brother decided he was going to drop a bag off with all the money in it. So there's your typical debt collection. It's always on phone calls the majority of the time. So that one worked out smoothly. Give us one where there were more challenges. Ugh. A funny one, um, one of my best friends, he uh, he looked after a fella that was down on his luck. He took him under his wing and um, this person had a very bad drinking habit. And this person decided when my mate was out to go to his place and basically rub a large amount of dough out of it. The problem was someone seeing him running out of the gaff because he was pissed out of his head. Um, unfortunately for him, there was a girl about three roads up that had a restraining order on him. And as he's gone bolting down the road with the money, she's seen him and rung the police. <sighs> so they've obviously flooded the area with police. He's ended up stashing the money and got arrested. So he's now sat in the police station. We've got a phone call off the next door neighbour saying, we see this geezer, give the description. And uh, we ended up picking him up from the police station. And uh, we said, give us the money back and we'll leave it as that. Because we know you, you're going to get eyed in, but we'll leave it as that. He didn't want to know. That drunk still, this is like nearly 16 hours after he got arrested, absolutely rotten. So he got taken, um, he got hiding, he got drowned in a puddle, he got stripped naked. He had a lot of very peculiar things happen to him in in the next three hours. Uh, still wouldn't give the money up. And in the end, it was to the point of, we're either going to kill him or we're going to have to let him go. Now, you've got to be a fucking idiot, kill someone over a, a bit of dough. And uh, the next morning he woke up, Cut smothered in bruises and fuck knows what else. And he was like, I've got your money. Come and get it. And it was like, why don't you do that fucking four hours ago and save yourself a world of shit? <sighs> but that's what you're dealing with with some people. That's the way it goes. All right, so in that profession, you've got to be pretty fearless. Yeah. How did you become fearless? I just think I've got something wrong with me. I think, <laughs> as my mum would say, you, you ain't right. I had it from a very early age. If there was a roller coaster, if there was a bungee jump... If there was a new motocross bike, I'd be on it with no helmet. It's, it, I've just never had fear there. I don't. I think it's my um, my brain's way of, of of processing certain things. I don't get me wrong. I get fear in certain situations, 
But with that, I never did. I never did. It was always me. I was always the first one through the door. I was always the last one out. It, it, it just didn't really bother me. It become natural after a while. No different from a normal person going to work and doing their nine till five. Was there a point in that profession where they tried to kidnap you or come to your house? I was... First time that happened, I was 15. Uh, I was going out with someone and I, I got banged up. And I come out and this person had um, been sleeping around with someone or I found out about it. And uh, we ended up going to the person's house and having murders and all the rest of it. And it ended up, I, I pulled out of my uh, my mum's old flat. Uh, two geezers jumped out of a car, balaclavaed up. Shooters come to the door, put the window through, dragged me out. And I got stun gunned in the neck with a, um, a cattle prod. How's that uh, feel? Not very good. And um, shocking it is. And uh, he put it in my neck and it must have knocked me out. And I think I come to him between the two vehicles. I stun gun me again. I came round again and I was in the back of their car and I managed to push off of the bottom of the car, headbutt the geezer that had hold of me and run across the dual carriageway. Bearing in mind, I'm only 15 and these were these were two big geezers. Um, and the police come. I refused to give a statement, refused to get involved. And then uh, I had a phone call from a, another well-known villain in London and I was uh, asked to go to his house. So I went. Um, and basically it was, look, you kept your mouth shut. This is a bit of dovia, like we're, we're not going to say any more about it. But that was my first experience of that side of it. Uh, and I made it my will in life to never put myself in the position where that could happen. And even though I'm completely away from it now, and I have been for years, even if I walk into a restaurant, even if I walk into a house, I'm noticing straight away where the doors are, where, where the blind spots are. If you just naturally do it, it's just built into my brain. You can't get around it. Sitting with your back to the wall. Yeah, always see the entrance and the exit. Yeah, I walked in in a room where the New Mexican Mafia in Arizona had a guy hogtied and they were cattle prodding him. He was like naked and just every time they did it, piss just shot out of yeah. his dick. Oh, yeah. Scary shit. Yeah. <laughs> what other scrapes have you had then in your younger years? Oh, God, countless. Uh, we've had baseball bat incidents. We've had incidents where people are pulled in with cars and they pull firearms. So, on so the baseball bat incident, um, why did that come about? That came about uh, because one of my friends had basically knocked another drug dealer. And these two drug dealers from out the area basically didn't really know us. And they said, look, we're coming and this is going to happen. Uh, we basically said, look, we're back here. Um, and it was funny because I just had an operation on my wrist and I had to have a bit of bone taken out of my hip and put into my wrist. So I was hobbling along. I had my arm in, in plaster like with all the bandages on. And uh, when we got there, they turned up on the estate. And it, it was quite funny because I had a wooden baseball bat. And it's the only time I've had a baseball bat where the person stood in front of me and said, you won't hit me with that. And I'm standing there thinking, well, how fucking wrong are you? And I ended up breaking the geezer's arm, fracturing his skull. Jesus. And uh, it was funny because the geezer's bird had a, uh, an air pistol, like a pellet gun. And <laughs> my mate ran up to him and she actually shot him point blank range in the forehead. <laughs> so I'm, I'm fighting on the floor and my mate's running around going, she shot me in the forehead. So I'm trying not to laugh and I'm fighting at the same time. But, um, but that was just a normal thing back then. It was just, uh, it was just a scrap. We called that a scrap back then. And you had a more serious situation with firearms. Yeah, we was um, honest. And you know what? To this day, I don't even know what that was over. Um, I literally got a phone call saying there's people coming. We turned up. They turned up in a car. Not the best idea. The getaway driver that he had um, decided not to get out of the car. They tried firing the gun and it jammed. And my mate had a bulletproof vest on. 
So he's run towards him and the mate with the gun turned around and run off. So I leant through the car and his mate was trying to start the car and go. So those people that have stolen cars in their time, you know about the old cars, the steering wheels tend to come off if you keep twisting them. So I just kept pulling the steering wheel around and I just took the whole steering wheel with me out the car and he couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> he had about 15 geezers around him and he's locked in the car now and can't go anywhere. But um, but and that was another one where police were swarming and helicopters and... You've got to remember, we was teenagers at this point. You don't sort of know what you're getting into. You don't know where it's leading to. And you, you don't take the consequences into account then. Tony's just getting warmed up. These are just his <laughs> teenage stories, people. So if you're not gripped by now, <laughs> just wait. <laughs> Any points where you were close to death? I think if you was to ask my mum and dad, I find it utterly amazing that I'm, I'm alive now. I really do. Um, I've had friends that have been murdered. I had one recently as last year in Feltham. Um, his house was broken into and he, he was macheted to death. That was drugs, gangland stuff? That wasn't drugs. I think he had gone round and basically stuck it on the wrong person. Um, I think the court case is ongoing now, so I don't know too much about it, but I know they've been arrested. Um, it's just, I've never grasped that. I mean, as much as what I've done... It would have to be something very severe for me to want to kill you. Like I don't understand how people now take it so lightly to take a life. And it's not the fact of, I don't think you've got the arsehole to do it. It's the fact of, how do you think you're going to get away with it? The technology that the police have got now is frightening. And it really is frightening. So for you to think that you're going to go and murder another human being and then go and brag about it to your mates and put a Snapchat up and not get a knock at the door, you're delusional. That's the rest of your life gone, and it's you're looking at fifteen years plus now. I've got three of um, three of my mates that uh, went on a bit of work, and they ended up tying the geezer up. Normal routine. They went through the door. They grabbed the geezer, um, asking to open the safe. Geezer had heart attack in the chair and died. Mm. So them being the bright sparks that they are, instead of just moving the body away or making it look like nothing had happened, they set the whole house on fire with him still inside it. And they all got 30-year recommended sentences. Like, mm. He's going to be in his 60s, 65 by the time he gets out. And you have to ask you, is it worth it? Criminal geniuses. Well, it is. And I, th this is the thing. When I'm going around to all the, the schools now, doing the talks with the younger kids, and if you take your average drug dealer, so I'm not talking about your high level, I'm talking about someone that's going to buy an ounce or two ounces of gear and they're shot in it, you're going to be earning profit probably no more than a grand in a week if you get rid of it all. Now, if you get caught with that and you get four years and you divide that £1,000 up over the four years, you, you earn less than minimum wage. So the penny's got to drop somewhere. Hold on, I'm better off going to craft here. Do you know what I mean? But by the time they get to this point in their lives, they're 35 years old and they've got no skills. They've got no work skills. So they're, they're now stuck in that rut. And it's a hard thing to get across to kids. It really is. So we're going to get to your weapons offence. And in Arizona... Guns are everywhere. everywhere. Saturday night special, hundred dollars. How easy is it to get? Was it for you to get guns in this country? What, oh, how would you pay? How much would you pay? They don't take checks, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, <laughs> but it's not hard to get hold of a gun. Yeah. I mean, even though uh, firearms are illegal in the UK, you can have a licensed firearm if you go through all the checks. Now, they have to keep these firearms in their premises, and they've created this wonderful thing, this contraption called a gun safe. Believe it or not, these geniuses that buy the guns and put them in the gun safes then put the gun safe on the wall with raw plugs. So what happens is the door comes off when they're at work, they come back and half their wall's missing. The guns are gone, the safe's gone. 
And um, so there's a lot of guns in circulation in, in that way. Uh, but there, there's, listen, if there's if there's a way of getting tons of cocaine, tons of cannabis, tons of ecstasy pills, you're going to get tons of guns in as well. Um, but again, it, it, for me, a gun is a is an ultimate last resort. If you need to take a gun somewhere to prove a point, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And that's the actual we are. We we never used violence if it wasn't necessary. We weren't bullies. So I'm not going to come through your door and just beat you up for the fun of it because I feel powerful and I'm in a room. I've come there to get one thing. You don't interest me. You're just in the way. And that's the way it was. So what led to your weapons offence? What one? The first one. <laughs> first weapon offence would have been a knuckle duster, believe it or not, which is back then was classed as a, a, a proper weapon. I don't know why, but it was. Um, and I used to always carry dusters with me. They're fucking brilliant. It saves you breaking your hands in a hundred different ways and you always knock them out in the first couple of punches. So they were a blinding little contraption. Firearms offences, I managed to swerve all, all offences to do with weapons. I swerved up until the uh, the last time I was in Bullingdon. Um, and the gun the gun wasn't ours. So it was it was a it was a weird, weird case. A very weird case. We um we told the truth, believe it or not, at the police station. They, they weren't having none of it. It was like, we don't believe a word of this. And uh, I'd only gone to buy a watch. Went to buy a Rolex watch. And the geezers had travelled down from Birmingham. They said, we're going to meet you in a service station. And uh, when we have got there, the the idea was that they were going to come into the services to the Costa Coffee. I'm going to show me the watch. If I liked it, I'll give them the money and we'll go our separate ways. When they pulled up, they said, we're not coming in. So straight away, alarm bells are ringing. <laughs> so I've come out and um, one's got in the back of my car. He's giving me a watch and it was moody as fuck. So I threw the watch at him and I was going to slap him. I was going to get him out of the car just for wasting our time, if not anything else. And then his mate decided to get out of the car and try and hold a gun to us. And um, the gun got took off of him. Where he, were you positioned when he did that? He was as far away from you are now. So he, where did he hold a gun to you? Because I was walking around the vehicle to get his mate out the back of my car. Oh. So he sort of jumped out from the car next to us and he's now in between me and my back door and the gun's gone up to my chest. I see. Um, but again... How does that feel to have a gun on your chest? Not very good. It's not a nice feeling, but over the years I've learned if you give anyone with a gun three seconds to think about what they're doing, you're either going to get shot or you're going to get injured severely. So the second you see that gun, you have to react if you do it quick and you surprise them, you can normally get hold of the situation. And in that case, that's what happened. I took can you describe from... exactly what you did? Uh, I grabbed the, the top of the gun and pushed it down and then pulled it out of his hand and then smacked him straight in the forehead with it. And then um, my power I was with, he's, um, he was a cage fighter. Obviously, I was a cage fighter for years. Um, so, yeah, they, it, it wasn't much of a fight. And they sort of run off crying with their legs, their tail in between their legs. And uh, the police come. We had already left. And our attitude was, look, we do it. They've tried it. It, it hasn't come off, so just don't worry about it. We weren't going to ring the police or nothing. And uh, we got back towards Reading. Um, Three-arm response X5s. Pulled us over. Machine guns drawn. Zip-tied to death. Dragged to the police station and got remanded into uh, into Bullingdon. And uh, I think it was like six months we'd done before, the, uh, before we could provide the evidence to get the truth to come out. And in the end, it did, thank God. Uh, and we, uh, well, we wasn't cleared. We was actually found not guilty by the judge. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So on Britain Behind Bars, you talk about how you were established. So that's six months. Is, is You were already established by then, or are you just building up your reputation in the system? Uh, what, in prison? Yeah, your reputation in prison. Yeah, the, the prison thing comes from just years of being in prison. It's like... Um, it's sort of like going to a, a Chelsea football match. If, you're, if you've got your your season ticket, you sort of see the same people over and over again. And prison is the same thing. It doesn't matter where you are in the country, you will bump into someone you've known. And the amount of sentences I'd done up until that point, it was a case of I'd come in and it'd be like, all right, mate, bit of a catch up. Um, so your reputation sort of follows you. So that six months then for that offence, that was just a smooth ride for you because you've already got a reputation. Yeah, I mean... A lot of people knew me from outside, not necessarily all for bad things, um, just because we get around so much. Um, you, you get to meet a lot of interesting characters. And there's always someone in there that knows someone that you know. That's the other one. It'll be like, do you know my mate's uncles? <laughs> but, um, it's a lonely place, isn't it? It is. It is. It's nice when you know someone, or, you know, there's some kind of connection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I couldn't get used to is after the TV programme, it was funny, we went to a B&Q, me and my mate Jack, and uh, some geezer started following us about with his missus. So I turned around to Jack and said, listen, what's this geezer following us for? He said, I don't know. He said, go down this aisle and we'll see if he follows us. And he's followed us again. So I sort of nipped him behind the shelf. And I said, when he walks up, I'm just going to crack him. And I've, I've jumped out and he went, you was on the telly, weren't you? <laughs> and I was like, hey, nice one, mate. I thought, <laughs> it that, takes a bit of getting used to. That happened to my co-defendant, Wildman, but he cracked the guy before he was able to say <laughs> what he was doing. I think you've been up for, on crystal meth for a few oh, days. God. <laughs> I, I had a very similar one. I was in um, a nightclub in um, in Woking and I was dancing away and I was absolutely paralytic and I was dancing and someone put their hand on my shoulder and it's just, it's natural, for, especially from beyond. So I've literally spun around, I've headbutted the gauge when I took all of his teeth out <gasps> and his bird come over and picked him up. She went, he was only coming to say hello, he went to school with you and I was like, oh, oh. let me buy you a drink. <laughs> but you, you do get occasions like that. Yeah. It takes right. a bit of getting used to. Six months then, you get out of that situation. Yeah. What was the next big trouble you got in? So the Bullinden thing would have been the last thing. That was the last thing I've, I got arrested for, um, which was 2016. Ah, oh, so you'd already done almost nine years at that point. Oh, well, that, well, that weren't even including that, them six months. Okay. Before that, I got a five years that I'd done two and a half out of. Uh, I'd done an 18-month remand for an attempted murder. Uh, I'd done another six-month remand for a GBH, and then I had all the young offender sentences, which were normally between 12 months and two years where you'd done half. 
But tighten it all up, it'd be about nine, nine and a half years in total. All right, so we've introduced you, your background, you've described it all brilliantly, those quickfire stories. That was really, <laughs> uh, that was a good pace. <laughs> what we're going to do now is we're going to get into your prison stories and we want you to just really take as much time as possible describing the details yeah, here yeah. in these stories. And the first one is the melting face. The melting face. That was in um, HMP High Point. Um, I'll never forget this kid. I can't remember. I think it was Khan. He was a little Asian fella, and he was only little, bless him. And uh, for whatever reason, this this group of guys had decided to jump him on the exercise yard. And I take me out off to him. He took the beating, and then he got back up and walked over to us, and he said, I'm going to get every single one of them back. And like you hear a lot of this in prison. It don't happen. And uh, we had like um, education classes, and you took them just to get off the wing. And in this education class, I watched this geezer for an hour with a kettle. He put two big bags of sugar in it, and he just sat with his foot on the boil button. So it was constantly boiling. When we've come out of the classroom, this geezer, he started with the biggest one first. This geezer must have been about six foot four, six foot five, um, and he was a lump. And uh, as you come out of the exercise, the, um, the education doors, you know, you get like the flappy doors. He sort of stood behind the doors, and he's got his mate inside, going to give him the heads up when he's coming out. Now, up until that point, I'd seen people hot-watered, but I'd never really seen the after-effects because sort of when the hot water gets thrown, normally a fight ensues and then the screws jump in and you don't really see what damage it's done. And uh, this geezer walked through the doors and he was literally standing like this with a kettle and he'd done this whole kettle in this geezer's face. And I'll never forget the scream was so high-pitched with the pain. And he sort of lunged and grabbed him. But as he'd done it, he his face went onto the wall and the only way to describe it is, you know, candle wax, when it, when a candle's in oil and you tip it out and it goes hard, there was just this geezer's face <sighs> over, the, over the wall. And it was like from the forehead all the way, he got him proper. And it was, it was the most horrible thing I have ever seen in prison for prison injuries. I've seen stabbings, I've seen slashings and, and punch-ups, but that for me was... It, it it wasn't a nice thing to watch, but he was scarred permanently. And it was funny because I went to um I went to a rave as it goes. I think it was in Ipswich, and uh, he actually turned up with someone with one of the MCs that I knew. And I could see he had just got a massive white patch on his face now. That's why I called it the melting face because it, it literally just melted off of him like candle wax. So, as that happened, then how long before the guards came? That one was quite a while because when you're in the education block. You have guards, but they tend to be at the entrance downstairs. So where it was only prisoners present, the the alarm wasn't raised for a good three, four, five minutes. I think a teacher come out and then pressed their button on the radio uh, and then they all come up. But it was funny because the screws were trying to bend him up. But as they're bending him up, they've got him face down on the floor. So all you can see is lumps of his skin coming off on the carpet, off of his face. And it's like... <laughs> it, it, for, I would love to know his perspective on it because we was all just stood there like... Ooh. Like, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it's, it's, it didn't look nice at all. It didn't look enjoyable. The guy that did it, did he? Did he get away with it? Yeah, yeah, he got away with it. Yeah, I think he got a nicking over it, but I don't think I could prove anything, and we wouldn't say anything. So you said you saw some other incidents similar to that, but not as extreme. Before. Not as extreme. What, um, what, why? Why did they come about? What just normal fights in in the, the prison the, system? The throwing the. The water was yeah. literally, I don't know the reason for it, but there was like five of them as a group that jumped him in the exercise yard. Don't actually know what it was over, but he dedicated himself and said, I'm going to get every single one of these back. You said you saw some other situations of people getting jugged. Yeah, I've seen I've seen people get stabbed. Um, 
a lot of uh, do you know the worst ones are the self harming. Self harming. Um, when I was in High Down, I think it was two thousand and eleven. I got a job, um, and any of the officers that work there that watch this podcast, they will remember exactly what I was like down there. And I was like, yeah, the healthcare orderly. So probably not the best job for me to have, but um, they they put a lot of trust in me at that point because I was um, I wasn't even allowed off the prison wings at that point. So for me to get a job off of the wing where you're literally down there all day, it's um, it's, it's kind of a rare job in the prison system to do that. Um, so they put the trust in me, so I thought I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, I had about five months left. I thought it'd kill the time. And you're literally down there with all the nut nuts, the paedophiles, the rapists, anyone that can't go onto a normal wing. And I'll never forget it. It was my job to give out the lunches. So I go to the cell door and it'd literally like, the cell door would open, I'd put the food up, they'd take it, you wouldn't even talk to them. And this one fellow, I got there and the, the, the flap was covered up. So I've said to the officer, I said, like, I, can't, I can't get his food in, you're going to have to open the door and slide it in or whatever. So we open the door, I'll oh, shit you not right, this is a 12 by 6 cell. There was not one part of the cell that didn't have claret on it. He had put blood and written, I am the devil, in blood. And when I say he had cut himself, instead of going this way, and anyone that knows anything about suicide attempts will tell you, anything this way, you want attention. If you want to do it, you do it this way. Mm. And he had done it on both arms. He had done his legs. And oh, dear. It was, I couldn't understand how he was still alive with what blood he had left in him. It was just ridiculous. But that, that was a sight to see. Um, same with shit protests. They're another one that are a bit of a drain on the senses, especially the smell, uh, where people decide they're going to absolutely smother their whole body in shit um, and then start on the screws. Um, what kind of things do prisoners want to take it to the shit protest level over? Uh, an inmate will go to that level because they feel they're not getting where they want to be with a complaint. So the thing with the prison system, no different from putting a complaint in against the police. You sort of put the complaint in and then you never hear about it again. And then you'll get a letter going, we've investigated it and we can't see any fault. And for some people, it's very frustrating. And there's no one... I mean, there's a... Um, uh, a company like it's like a charity based company called the IMB they're called uh, the independent monitoring board and they're basically meant to be the in-betweens the officers and the um the inmates so if you feel that they're not investigating something properly you give it to the IMB the only problem is they're all old age pensioners so it's like how are you and you're like I'm fucking banged up how do you think and it's <laughs> It's, it's, it's sort of not fit for purpose. So obviously the next natural possession is I'll just cover myself in shit and we'll see if we get anywhere that way. They don't actually get any further forward apart from they smell. But Were you ever at the level where you felt you were going to do a shit protest? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do it properly, you're going to do a Bronson. You're going to go up on the roof and you're going to absolutely trash the prison um, because then at least you're going to get noticed. Did um, you do that? Nah. Nah, I didn't, I didn't go up on any roofs. Uh, I went up on a, um, a TV room uh, roof. It's funny because I actually added the um, the lady on Facebook the other day, and uh, she used to be an officer at Reading Young Offenders, and she she writ you used to be a fucker. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they had a TV room and they, they they wanted to cut the association short, and we said yeah fuck that. We so we went we got all the munch, and back then you had like a um, a little shop. So now you get your canteen, it's brought to your door in a bag. So in Red and Young Offenders, you actually had a little barred window and it was a shop. You could go there and you say, I want that, that, and you had your spend in your account. So we sort of robbed all of that and then got up on the roof and said, fuck yourself, we ain't coming down. So I think it was up there for about five hours. And then they've got these massive red 
fire hoses. And like, if you go to like um, a hotel or something, you can normally see them on the big red wheel. My God, are they powerful. So they're caught, have put the mats around the outside and they said, are you coming down? And we said, no. And then all of a sudden this water started. Oh my dear God. You just shoot off the end and then they jump you and you can't do nothing. But yeah, that was quite a funny experience. All right. So the next story then was Undercover. Undercover was, um, again, it was an HMP high point and there was a lifer uh, that was in, I think his name was Martin. And uh, he was a lovely, lovely geezer. He'd done about 16 years at that point. And um, he sort of took me under his wing. And on association times, I'd go and play the computer with him or whatever. And he said, you know what? He said, I can't even remember what it's like to be with a woman. And he didn't have any women visiting him. And I said, listen, I've got something on the back burner. I'm going to sort you out. And he's like, all right, all right. So I've, um, I'd started a, a relationship with a female officer in there. And what was funny was, is that when you go into the prison, remember what I said about going on to induction? So you normally do about four or five days on an induction wing where they're telling you about the way that the jail is run because every jail is different. And then they'll put you into a main wing. And as soon as I walked in this door, this this woman was giving me the eyes. So straight away I'm thinking, oh, this, is, this could be a beneficial. And um, she ended up moving, putting a work movement from where she worked on the induction wing to come onto my house block. And obviously, this relationship was going on for about four or five months. That's a lot in prison because you get people a, like snitching lot, you out, thinking, I get rid of him, I can make my moves. A lot. And what made it worse. You is kept it to yourself. I kept it to myself, but it, the, like the two best pals I had in there that I was with every day would always have a laugh because the woman officer who it was, her husband was the head gym PO. So I'd be doing what I was doing. And then going to the gym and he'd be spotting me doing squats. So it was kind of like an inside joke. <laughs> and um, something happened in the cell one day, shall we say. And I got left with a little memento uh, that she forgot to put back on. So um, <laughs> I went into Martin's cell and he was sitting with his back against the wall. I'll never forget it. He was sitting there and I, I got these pair of knickers and I put them straight on his nose. And he went, oh my God. <laughs> I said, you owe me for that. He went, oh, he said, and they're dirty, aren't they? I said, yeah, I said, you can keep them. And believe it or not, some little idiot that was in the cell with him grasped me up. And, oh. uh, and that was probably the hardest segregation I'd done because I ended up doing 17 weeks in segregation. And segregation is you're down the block, you're in a room with a mattress on the floor and a toilet, and you have like a polystyrene table and chair. And I was on four-man unlock, so you had to have four officers to open the door to even give me my dinner. And it got to a point where they was just refusing to ship me out. And I didn't know this at the time, but if you're in segregation, they have these things called um, algorithms. The priest has to sign one or the chaplain, a nurse has to sign one and the governor has to sign one. As long as they're all signed, you're fit to be in segregation. The minute one of them doesn't sign, they have to move you out. And where they were so annoyed that I'd done this with a member of the staff and it caused a big uproar in the prison, they just refused to ship me out. And it ended up, I had to uh, tie a noose around my neck, planned it out perfectly. I actually made it five foot longer than what the floor was because I thought, no, my luck, I'll do it and actually hang myself. <laughs> so I made this noose that was too long, put it around my neck. They come to the door. I've ended up having a massive tear up with the screws and the, um, the nurse come and she said, nah. He's got to go, and I got moved to uh, to Wayland, and uh, I've I, I done my last five months in there, sweet, isn't that? So in Seg, 
how do you pass the time? What was your routine? A lot, a lot of press-ups, a lot, a lot of cell workouts. You was meant to get an hour in the exercise yard and then a phone call, and they're meant to let you out to go up to the counter to get your food. But because they didn't want me out of the cell, I wasn't getting those things. So literally, you're either trying to listen out the window to someone's radio or you're reading a book or you're writing a letter. You just have to occupy your mind. Otherwise, you will go nuts. Um, and to be honest, I think I wasn't far off. It really affected me because there's only so long you can look at four walls. And it, when you can't see the end of it, it starts to drain on you mentally. Um, but I'd obviously reached that point where I thought, fuck this. It's going to have to be drastic measures to get out. And to be fair, it worked. And did the attitude of the guards change towards you because you've been with a female staff member? Oh, 100%. 100%. I had one come to the door and try and open the thing and give him my food, and he said, I'm going to get you. So he swiftly got all the food over his head. It's just... it's. I look at it as we was two adults. She made a decision. I made a decision. It's not like she was bullied into it. It's not like I've said, look, I've got this hanging over you. It was just a mutual attraction. It, it What happened happened, and that was it. But it passed six months, lovely, I must say. <laughs> Next one was Surprise on the Yard. Surprise on the Yard. That was um, <laughs> that was a, a yardy geezer. Um, now, I don't know if you've heard of Window Warriors. It's like Cell Warriors. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in eye down, and this uh, this new yardy geezer and two of his mates come onto the wing, and they're out the window, and it's like three o'clock in the morning. And all I'll do, I'm normally asleep by about 11, 12 o'clock. And um, they just wouldn't fucking shut up. So I'm not really wanting to go to the window and start a fight, but I just got to that point where I had enough. They was mouthing other people out the window. And I said, listen, come out in the exercise yard tomorrow. We're going to have to have a chat because this ain't happening. And it was like, bumba clap, fucking you out. Like, oh, <laughs> so I woke up in the morning and lo and behold, I've got, um, there's an officer called um, Mr. Ross and a big bull geezer, a lovely fellow he was. And uh, he come to me cell and he said, listen, he said, we've had reports back that this has been said. I said, listen, don't worry about it, I'm fine. He said, don't do anything on the exercise yard. And I was like, got my word, I won't do anything on the exercise yard. I said, all right. So we've all gone out on the exercise yard and out come these three yardies. And uh, one's walking around with his hand down his trousers like he's got a knife. And uh, we go to the furthest point from the officers. Uh, and basically he's approached me. Um, gone to say something and I've cracked him straight away I've just I've gone in and um, I'm jumping up and down on his head his mate's pulled a big pen out off, off, I think saying and uh, my mate jumps on him and these officers the horror on the faces because this geezer's nose had burst they was trying to get through the gates but they couldn't get the key in so they're trying I'm battering the geezer they've come running out and the fella that uh, had been beaten up was now unconscious on the floor. Mr. Ross came running up behind me. He said, what have you done? You're all on camera. I said, listen, it is what it is, mate. So as we've walked off, someone had dropped sank on the floor. It's like a little parcel. And uh, one of my pals picked it up and it was like a load of puff. And my mate come in through the door. I'll never forget. As we got back to the cell, he said, I found a surprise. <laughs> I said, have you? He said, yeah. He said, let's have some of this. I was like, oh, lovely, jubbly. So that was, the, um, that was the surprise on the yard that we had one morning. <laughs> a close shave. A close shave will be the one that was in um, Bullingdon. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I haven't really got a, a gag reflex. There's not a lot I can see that would make me feel physically sick. But that individual, he had done a job on himself. He, mm. he had got, um, well, you know, the, the the prison razors. If you take them out of the casing, it's just a razor. They're, they're extremely sharp. 
and he had literally gone from this side all the way around to the other side and you could see in his neck what it, it was bad and what made it even more remarkable is that the geezer was still arguing with me at the door and he's just it's just pumping out and like you see on the documentary they've um prisons have protocols where if anything like that happens it goes to a code red where they call all staff and all inmates should be locked away. But the problem was he got so paranoid that the officers were going to come through the door and hurt him. They've gone to open the door and he's he's with the knife. And I said, look, you're going to go in there and one of you's going to get stabbed. I said, let me go in there. So he opened the door, I went in, he gave it to me straight away, sat down and put the towel around his neck. And um, he, he was in a right bad way. He had, a, I think he had over like 100 stitches in his neck. Um, and the resulting officer that, um, that was at the door that you see, he actually um, got moved on to other duties because it affected him that badly. Um, Mr. Aldridge and uh, I mean in the first place for me he, he wasn't officer material he, he didn't have the mindset and he didn't have enough life experience or street smarts to become a, a prison officer but they threw him in at the deep end because they're short staffed and um, yeah it, it, it affected him bad it really did but yeah that that was a, not a, a pleasant experience what was the self harmer in for do you know he was in there for murdering his wife and again it's another funny murdering one murdering his wife do you know what what circumstances yeah. that what happened i don't know what happened um other than that he murdered her but it was funny because the sister of the woman that was murdered messaged me on facebook and she was like i hope you didn't do him no favors and i was like look he weren't me mate I don't know him. I don't know anything about the offence. All I know is it slit his throat and he needed help, just like I'd help anyone else in prison. Um, unless you're in there as a nonce or something like that, I'll just watch him bleed out. But for him, he, he's just another person in the prison system for a murder. There's, there's hundreds of murderers in, in prison. How many times did you um, intervene and save people? Quite a few times. Um, I mean, the, the, the system that they've put in place now for the insider scheme... Um, and you've got a violence reduction reps, it is a really good idea. The problem with it is that if you become a violence reduction rep and you can't look after yourself, it's very easy for you to be drawn into the argument that you're trying to sort out. So you could have someone coming to you saying, look, these are all going to stab me because I've knocked them for a load of gear. Now I'll go and then talk to the other geezers saying, well, look, he's fucking rumped me. What, what do you want me to do? But if, if you're not smart enough in the middle they can turn and go, I'll tell you what, he's getting it and you're getting it as well. So there's a fine line of of communicating between the two parties. But it is a good idea. I think it's a good idea. But there's so much of it that goes on in prisons now. People will come onto a wing, they will tick as much gear off people as possible and then they'll threaten to kill themselves and then they'll get moved onto another wing. But the problem is they soon run out of wings and then it's like the whole prison wants to kill them. <laughs> and then you're the poor fucker that they come to you and go, we need you to sort this out. And you're like, fuck off. The whole prison wants to kill you. What do you want me to do? But I think it's a good idea. In certain situations, I think it is good. You tax people on the streets. Did you not yeah. continue to tax people in prison? Nah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think phones are the one. If someone's got a phone and you can't look after yourself, it's, it's going to get took off you. For the simple fact that people want to talk to their families and want to talk to their kids at the night time. But with drugs, not not so much. I mean, a lot of the younger ones, absolute fucking nightmares for it. You, someone will have an eight for puff and they'll go in there ten mob-handed and fucking beat the absolute life out of the geezer for an eight for puff. I've heard stories of spoons going up people's asses to pull it out and you would not believe. I've walked in cells and I've seen people underneath the beds, naked, and they're going to give it up. It's coming. It's coming. It's like, you've only got 15 minutes of association left and it's like, get the spoon out. And it's like, 
it happens a lot in there. It really, really does. And it's um, it's a major problem. The spice epidemic is like nothing I've ever seen. They've completely lost control in the prison system with it. And it got to the point where the officers were being called out because there's someone literally just fitting and it's like they're just standing and it's like he's on spice. And it's it's a scary thing to watch. What's the craziest things you've seen people do on spice? On spice? Yeah. Well, we had um, we had a geezer with us in Bullingdon. And he used to deal with Spice and his little thing would be, you have three tiers. And at the very bottom tier, at the very end, you had a pool table. And he would basically say, look, I will give you a hit of Spice for free, but you have to do one hit now. You have to run down the stairs, run around the pool table and come back up and then you can have another free hit. But if you don't do it, you're paying me for it. Now, they would be fucking queuing up. And it is the, f- it's not funny, but to watch it is, hell- it's like a comedy act. They would get down the stairs, and then by the time they get to the pool table, they're holding onto it and they can't move. And it's like, come on, you've got to pay for it. And you can see them in their head physically trying to get back to you, and they can't. We had one that projectile vomited on the floor, and he was swimming <laughs> in his own puke. And we was like, whoa, my God. But yeah, so the. It's an experience to watch someone on Spice. It really is. So you've talked about the craziest things you've seen with self-harmers and people on drugs. Apart from those stories, what's the craziest things you've seen people do in prison? Probably fights with officers. Um, There was a a point in Highdown. There was two prisoners that came onto the wing. And in Highdown, you get Spur, A, B and C. I think I was on Spur, B and they was on Spur, C. Now, all these Spurs are locked off from each other. And uh, it started feeding back that these two prisoners that had come in were going under the alias that was in for an armed robbery or something like that. But the problem is they have this um, this system called the NOM system that they use in all prisons. And that allows access to the, the prison officers, all the details about your offences. Now, whether it be in business or within the prison system, if someone sees information, someone's going to leak it. That's, that's how it is. And we had so many officers on the side they would literally come to us and go, he's an unce, he's an unce. And they wouldn't last two minutes on the wing. And these two individuals were in for rape of a 14-year-old girl. <sighs> and they had pinned her to a chair, tied her up, and they'd actually forced nails down in between her nail and her skin. Fuck off. Oh. And obviously the details have come out and these two individuals were on the wing. And it, it was quite funny to watch, actually, because when I say you get intelligent criminals... And then you get ones that they sort of think they're intelligent, but they're not sure. And you can imagine how many cameras are in, on a prison wing nowadays. So these individuals walked into a cell on camera. So they've all their faces on camera. And then they've all come out with balaclavas on. <laughs> and then they've, about 15 of them have set about these two people and really weighed them in. Then they've all run back to the cell, took the balaclavas off and walked out like, who done that? And it's like... You wonder why you're in it. (laughs) (laughs) Can anybody smell bacon? That's nonces. Um, I don't like nonces. I don't tolerate nonces. If a nonce walked up to me in the street, whether it's right or wrong, I'm laying you out. Because for me, I've got kids. And for me, how any human being can put suffering like that on a child you deserve to get what's coming to you because in Arizona it's KOS yeah yeah. well for me prison ain't a punishment for you 
for me, you're going to go into prison and you're going to come out with the exact same mindset you want to do stuff to kids. Mm. So for me, it's not the right punishment. I think Donald Trump is onto a winner there. I think all of them should be castrated. So they can't get them feelings towards kids. I think it should just be in law, you're castrated. It's crazy that people are doing life sentences for small amounts of drugs and paedophile politicians just get a slap on the wrist. But you know what? Like is Prince it, Andrew, now nothing's going to happen to it, him. Is it that hard to believe? <laughs> the levels that they're doing these child sex rings at, is it mm. any wonder that they're giving out light sentences mm. um, for, for these offenders? And I mean, you can't make their little kids, mate. They're innocent. For me, a kid should enjoy being a kid. You've got 50, 60 years to have all the shit that comes with life. They should get to enjoy their childhood. And for me, when they do these things to children, it's just unacceptable. But the funniest one I had was this young kid. I mean, when you go into prison, if you're you're a known sex offender or you're in there for abuse of a child or for whatever reason, they give you the option when you come in. They say, we can either put you on the sex offender's wing or you can take your chances on the normal wing. Now... If you have the mindset of a sex offender, you would be thinking, stick me on a sex offender's wing. But believe it or not, they're that deluded, some of these individuals, that they think, I'm not a sex offender. What i done isn't that bad. And that's the mindset they have. They go onto a normal wing and they say, I'm in it for burglary. But the problem is, there's a nom system. So I won't say the officer's name because I wouldn't want to get him in trouble. Yeah, no names. He um he come to us one day and I was sitting on uh, on my cell bed with me mate and he came in and he went read that and they had um they had heated up tablespoons and they had burnt this six month old baby all over her body oh, with geez. the spoons. Um, she had been sexually assaulted. It it, it was fucking horrific. Oh. And this kid the day before is standing with us on the landings. All right, mate, where are you from? Who do you know? Then we've got the num system. Uh, so he was taken into um, he was taken into a cell. And my way of thinking is is I want to inflict on you, and I want you to feel how that child felt when you was the powerful one in that room. When you had the power, I want you to feel how that child felt because for me, that's an experience he won't forget. Now our little party trick was to stick an item of fruit in a certain place, preferably a pair, because it goes in easier, um, you would then be beaten, stripped naked and thrown out on the landing. Now, this individual ended up with a whole pair um, inside him and uh, he got stripped naked. He had his teeth knocked out. He had his cheekbones broke. And it was funny because they threw him out onto the landing and as he ran up the landing with blood coming out of him, the officer was there going, moving off. And we was all pissing ourselves. And it's like some people will watch this and they'll say, two wrongs don't make a right. I'm I'm in full agreement with that. Two wrongs don't make a right. But when you take an innocent child and you subject that child to what that child went through. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Do you honestly think for the rest of that child's life it's, she's going to be the same? Because she's not. And for you to turn around to me and say, a judge has said, you're going to go and do three years in prison. Mm. You're going to eat your free meals. You're going to go to the gym. And then we're going to let you out and we're going to give you support. For me, fuck that. You you deserve what's coming to you. You, you need to realise that what you've done is wrong. And for me, I'm hoping with what we've done to certain nonces over the years, I hope they have gone out and thought, you know what, fuck that, I ain't doing that again because I wouldn't want that treatment again. And I think that's how they should all be dealt with. They only understand one thing and that, and that's violence. They should never get out of prison. To get three years is ridiculous. I mean, I've seen a thing on Facebook today that the, the, the police are refusing to give 800 names of new sex offenders that are moving into an area. And it's like, what, what world are we living in? Like, my job as a parent is to protect my kids. Now, if you're going to move a sex offender three doors down to me, where's the onus on you? You're the people that are meant to be protecting us. So where's the where, where's the, the protection from your side? And it's, it's not there. I think, too busy shaking kids down for weed. Nah. And do you, know what's, do you know what's more upsetting is that it's going to take a massive abuse of some poor child for people to start rioting, for people to bring it to the attention of the media so that something is done about it. And... It's horrible for me to think that some poor fucking child is going to have to go through that for it to get to that stage, and it shouldn't be like that. It really shouldn't. So you said that wasn't the only sex offender you did convict justice on. Have you got other stories? Yeah, I mean, it's the same rigmarole. If you if you come onto the to the um to the wing and we got the noms and you was a sex offender, you would be dragged in a cell, you'd be beaten, you would be belittled, you you would have things done to you so that you're not going to forget them. Now, for me, I've had so many fights in my life. If I punch you in the face and we've had a disagreement, you're going to have a black eye. You're going to go home, the black eye's going to go, and you're going to forget about it. If you get a pear rammed up your ass, or you get your teeth pulled out, or you have, you're pissed on, or you're made to eat someone else's shit, you ain't forgetting that. That's with you till the day you die. And for me, they're the punishments that need to be dished out to people like that because they're wrong'uns. In the norms, then, was there anything as horrific as what you just quoted? That was probably the worst case. I know the other cases were things like um, it, it was sexual abuse in nature, um, but not as severe as that. That that was the only one that really got to me because of the injuries that the child endured. And when you look at this little prick that it was, he's a little idiot. He can't fight his way out of a paper bag. So for you to make yourself feel powerful, you went and done that to a six-month-old baby. You deserve everything you get. Sick bastard. All right, safe cracker? Safe. <laughs> this is a good one. So I'm in Wandsworth Prison. And this is back in the day when you had, like, the Nokia 3210s. So phones were quite square. Now, prison lingo, if someone says, listen, that's got to go in the safe. That's jargon for it's got to go up your ass because it's the only place that it is safe where the screws can't get to it. So this kid comes in, uh, never been to prison before, and he basically says, look, can you get me a phone? 
And I was like, it's going to cost you about 500 quid, but I'll get you a phone. And he said, all right, not a problem. So I sorted him out this phone. And it was a big Nokia 3210. And he's got the charger. Now, he didn't have the plug, but he had the charger lead. And he um, he comes into the cell and there's a few of us in there. Now, with me, I can I can say something can keep a straight face, whereas other people around me, are, they're trying their hardest not to piss themselves. And uh, he come in, he said, right, people are telling me this has got to cut my ass." I said, oh. I said, listen, you've got to wrap it in a breakfast pack, which is like clean film. I said, start with a corner, push it in. I said, after a while, it'll just go in. I said, then forget about it. And he's like, I've tried, it won't go in. I said, listen, there's one thing you can do. And my mate is looking at me thinking, what are you going to come out with? Now, for those people that have been to prison, you know you can get roll-ons on the canteen. So I don't know if you've ever seen an imperial leather roll-on. It's like a white block with a big red screwy top on it, probably about so big. And I said to him, look, wrap one of them in clean film, put all of that into your ass, walk around with it for half the day, that way it prepares your ass for what's coming. He's left the cell wearing stitches, right? So about half hour later, <laughs> he's done like a John Wayne walk. He went, I got it in. Proper proud of himself. And we're like, right, leave it in there for half the day. He's like, all right, mate. When he was, you could hear him on the toilet trying to get it out. And he got it out and he, he bought the phone back in. You know, I don't want it. <laughs> so yeah, that was an experience for him. <laughs> Summer in a bowl. Summer in a bowl. Um, Jamie will probably shoot me for saying this, but Jamie was the cameraman for the Britain Beyond Bar series. He uh, he was obviously roaming on the wings um, with with his partner, and um, they was coming into the cells, and we'd have a laugh. And on this this one day, there was a load of prison hooch that had been brewed up, and uh, Jamie's coming to the door, and he was like, "What are you up to?" And I said, "We've been making fresh orange juice." He was like, how'd you do that? Well, we'd just, I said, yeah, it's just fresh orange juice. I said, you look a bit parched. I said, come in here. So come in the cell. So he's come in the cell and he's got all the camera equipment with him and the mm-hmm. lead hanging down. And he said, I said, yeah, I'll try that. And he went, what is it? I said, it's summer in a bowl. I said, yeah, I'll try it. And he went, no, 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 I can't do it. I said, try it, try it, try it, try it, try it. So I it he took a big gulp of this thing, the face on him. What's that? <laughs> I said, it's prison hooch. And I said, well, you... I thought you were a journalist. You should try these things. <laughs> so you get an inside grasp of what's going on. And um, yeah, that, that was summer in a bowl. He's, um, he'll never forget that, Jamie. Um, what's, yeah. your, what's your hooch recipe? Uh, hooch you normally made up. You, we used to use brown bread. So you get brown bread, you squish it into balls, you put it into a jug of boiling water, add a load of sugar and then put it into like a bottle. Um, now from experience, you have to put a hole in the lid which a couple of occasions we didn't do and we've been sitting in the cell and you, you, you know the big cleaning bottles, like the 10 litres? We've got them on the pipes. We were sitting there playing the PlayStation. I swear to fucking God, it went bang and everything was covered in orange. <sighs> like literally it was all over us because obviously the where it expands with the heat, the pressure needs to get out. But um, yeah, you literally cook it up. You get It's called a kick. We call it a kick. And once you get the kick, you just add more juice to it, orange juice, apple juice. You leave it to ferment and then you drink it. And it's just like normal alcohol. Yeah, in Arizona, it's the Sonoran Desert. and So uh, the wall of the cell, it's almost 50 degrees outside. Yeah. So they cook it by putting a plastic bag next to the cell wall. Yeah. But you had to burp the bag. Yeah, to get the pressure long, out. Otherwise yeah. the whole bag's going to yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what other recipes have you got, prison recipes? Prison red, banoffee pie. That's always a good one. How'd you make it? Uh, digestive biscuits with a lump of butter. And you put it into, you can get like the little plastic containers. You put it in the bottom and press it down with a spoon, leave it overnight to set, and then you chop up your bananas 
put your bananas on. You can buy tins of condensed milk. So what you do is you put a hole in the top of the tin, put it inside a plastic bag, and then just leave it in the kettle and wedge sank in the kettle so it constantly boils, and that turns into caramel. You put that all over the bananas and then get your Cadbury's dairy milk and milk that over the top of it, and then it sets very, very sickly after a while, but what a treat it is. It's like your favourite. Oh, absolutely in there, absolutely. What other kind of stuff did the prisoners make? You had hooch, um, obviously the new thing with the vape pens, because you're not allowed to smoke in prisons anymore. So they've had to be creative in the way that they do spice so you need to burn the spice so you get like the little cartridges with the flavors in they will cut one of those in half so it's got the uh the burning bit at the bottom you know the little spring that heats up and uh they'll put the bit of paper on top and then they'll suck it through a pen um what else is there there's loads of little things you've got the hooch um obviously lines if you're um, banged up or there's been a riot or for whatever reason you're banged up, you're stuck in your cell and you need a roll up or you need something, you make a line so you rip loads of sh- strips of bed sheet, put something kind of heavy on the end and it's like spaghetti junction out the windows. It's like swing it to 15 to get it to 12 and it's like that keeps you occupied for a few hours. Fishing lines, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same thing with the parcels. Um, parcels would come over and you'd have to throw the line out and hook it and bring it back in. Um, it's funny because in um, around about that time I had the uh, the affair with the officer in High Point, some absolute genius discovered that the bars on the windows, if you got a wet towel and you put the wet towel around the windows and then put a, ch- a table leg in it and squeeze them, you could bow the bars in. Now, for whatever reason, the bars that were in place wasn't man enough to take it, so they bowed out. So I'm lying in bed one night and I've looked out the window and it was like a black Father Christmas. My mate Cliff, he's like this great big black geezer, he's gone running past with a bin line and he went, don't worry, we're sorted. And he's gone back through the window and it went on for about a month and then they literally shut the whole prison down and they'd done every single window in the jail. But that, that was quite amusing. What about tattooing, tattoo uh, guns? Yeah, I'm, I see it going on in there, but the, the thing with prisons is... is Back then, hep C was a, a big problem in jails and to use dirty needles and ink, it just it weren't for me. So I never had anything like that done. But I did see it going on. So you've described a few funny scenarios. What's the funniest thing you ever saw in prison? In prison, the funniest thing? Um, I had a nicking. Uh, I think I'd had about 16, 17 nickings in high down, all for fighting and various other shit. And it got to the point that the governor was on me. She was she was like Miss Trunchbull, I used to call her. And um, she was like, I'm going to get you. As soon as you fuck up again, I'm going to get you and you're getting shipped out. And what happened was we had this, um, this geezer that was meant to be bringing something in on a visit. And uh, for whatever reason, he fucked it up. Uh, do you remember I said about your A, B and C wings? They're all caged off at the end and in the middle it's called the centre and that's like the safe part for the officers but if you're a cleaner or a trusted prisoner on the wing you're allowed out into these areas now this geezer was on the other side of the bars and I was in the middle and obviously he's come down there's a few of my mates there and I said what's what's going on then and he said listen it's fucked up so I've literally punched him through the bars in the jaw he's gone on his ass. next thing I've got like 20 screws around me trying to bend me up Got put in the cell, and I'll never forget it. When you get nicked, you go down to segregation the following morning and you have to go in front of the governor. It's the only time I've gone into a governor's meeting and there was about 10 officers in there. Normally you get two. She was that convinced I was going to cave. And um, obviously where I've gone on to the the segregation unit, you get like the orderlies that are prisoners. 
that were in charge of keeping uh, the segregation bit clean. And um, I've managed to get messages back to the wing. And um, I've gone in there and she said, right, I've got this individual who's going to come down. I want you to tell me what's happened. Then we're going to get him in the room with all of the officers here so he's safe. Then I'm going to end up shipping you out of the prison. And I was like, not a problem. She said, what happened? I said, it's the funniest thing. I said, he had a roll up behind his ear. And I went through the bars to try and grab it. And he sort of reacted and fell over. It's plain as fucking day that I've smacked him in the mouth. And she went, oh, right. And she, even she's having a giggle at it. She said, what we're going to do now is we're going to get him in. She said, all right. So he's come walking in. There's all these officers standing around me. She said, you're safe. Listen, you're safe. He can't hurt you anymore. I thought, well, fucking my, like the violent stepdad here was saying. <laughs> And uh, he said, no, no, it's not a problem. I'll tell you the truth. And I'm sitting there. I haven't even looked at him. And she said, tell me what happened. He said, I had this roll up behind my ear. Gooch tried to grab it. Right? She went, fuck off. Get him out. Get him off the wing. And I ended up going back to the wing. And we ended up getting out about a month later. But she was hell bent on getting me. Hell bent. Escape from lawful custody. This, this is the one. In my 37 years... These were the most peculiar 72 hours I had, or I think I'll ever have. So I'm with my mate, uh, Matty Norton, his name is. Lovely fella. And um, I've been on the run for about two years. And I was looking at a substantial sentence. I think I was up for a Section 18 GBH and a load of others. But my barrister was telling me I was looking at about 10 years. So obviously I decided I wasn't really up for doing that. And um, I went on the run. And uh, I was staying at my pal's place. And at the time, we was doing all the high-performance cars. And this is before the days of AMPR and number plate recognition systems. You didn't have none of that. You could literally get a Chordy car and drive around in it on original plates. Unless the police officers see it and realise it was stolen or done or check on it, you just blend it in. And um, my mates rang me and said, listen, I've got a, a brand-new Range Rover supercharger. I'm desperate for dough. Give me a grand for it. You can have it. And I said, all right, let me make a call. So I rang my mate up and he was in uh, Richmond. And um, I said, look, I've got a Range Rover there. I want three grand for it. He went, I'll take it all day long. I said, sweet. So I'm thinking I've made two grand here. So I've gone and met the geezer and I've picked Matty's with me. And uh, he's in his full summer out of his nice hot day. And uh, he's in his little flip flop. So I'm in my little tracksuit. And uh, we're driving up the A316 into uh, towards London. And all of a sudden, there's a van following us, like a little Astra van. And Matty said, this geezer's following us. And I was like, oh, mate. So sort of done a few turns and he's still on us. So I thought, fuck this. So I've stopped the car. I've jumped out and I've actually run to his car to take the keys out of his motor and launch him. So he couldn't follow us. But what he's ended up doing is he's just reversed up the road. So I'm chasing the car. And I can see he's on the phone. So I've run back to the Range Rover and on the 316, there's a big Sainsbury's as you're going into London just before Twickenham. And I pulled in the car park and I've looked at mate and I said, this is drastic measures, mate. So I've stopped and we sort of reversed onto the bonnet of the van. So the, the rear wheels of the Range Rover are now by the windscreen. This is how hard we hit it. And then we've wheel spinned off of him. He's writ off. And we pulled out and we've carried on going towards Twickenham Rugby Ground. Now, in the distance, all you can see is blue lights. And we're like, what's going on here? So we've got there. And what they'd done was they'd sort of, because it's a dual carriageway, they'd doubled up four patrol cars. And we sort of went straight through the middle of them, about 60, 70 mile an hour. 
And then we got to the next junction and it was another four cars. So we, we've gone through those and we ended up literally outside Twickenham rugby ground and actually boxed us in. They'd done all four tyres. They put all of the windows through. We got CS gas to bits. And all I was doing was going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, trying to make a hole. And somehow we managed to pull out. Holy shit. And now we've ended up coming away from London. So now we're going back towards the M3. And uh, we got to um, somewhere just before Hampton. And uh, we got to a bit. I see a baby on board sign in the car in front and there was no pavement. So I thought, fuck it, it's going to be a decamp. So we've ended up jumping out the car. I've looked at him and I said, you're fucked, you're in flip-flops. So he sort of just sat in the motor and like resigned to the fact that he's getting nicked. And I've ended up running. And I, I remember I was behind these, you know, the clothes recycle bins. I was sat behind on the phone to my mate and I said, you've got to come pick me up. And he's like, all right, where are you? And I said, I'm behind these bins in this school. You need to come and pick me up. And uh, But half hour later, he's run back. He said, listen, you fucked. <laughs> I said, why? He said, they've corned off everywhere. He said, you can't even walk into where you are. He said, they, they've shut it all off. And then the next thing, I had a police dog on my ankles. So I've come out. Now, we're, my attitude towards police is that people hate police. I don't. You can hate police as, as, as a whole system. But you can't hate individuals if you don't know them. At the end of the day, it's a job. Someone's going to do it. And believe it or not, I've met a lot of police officers that are nice and that do do a good job. But then I've met a lot of fucking arseholes as well. And on this day, I met an arsehole. So the police dog wouldn't stop attacking me. So I've ended up beating the dog up. I just started punching the fucking shit out of the dog. And then I've ended up in the back of the van. They've ended up beating me up in cuffs. And I had broken fucking cheekbone and my ribs and... I get to the police station. I was taken to Twickenham Police Station. And uh, they said, look, we're going to remand you. So I said, all right, so you'll be going to court tomorrow. You'll be going to Kingston Magistrates Court. And I said, all right, not a problem. So I got to Kingston Magistrates Court and I'm thinking, fuck's sake, I've got to do something drastic here. Because I thought, once you're in the prison system, it's very hard to escape. And uh, I'm sitting and I thought, how can I do this? I thought, fuck it, fake heart attack. So and it was it was sod's law, right? Because at the time I'd been partying a lot. So I've sort of faked this fit on the floor. They've come running, you know, I've got like one eye open and I'm thinking, is it happening? And they've called the paramedics. Not inside, I'm like, fucking yes, go get me to the hospital. And um they've took me away and they've took me to Kingston Hospital. But now because I've been remanded in my absence, I'm now under Wandsworth Guard. Now if you're admitted to a hospital, you've obviously got to be able to eat. You've got to be able to have a shower and stuff. So what they do is they put you on this thing called a closet chain, which is basically a handcuff with six foot of chain and then another handcuff and you're handcuffed to the officer. It just allows you movement. And what happened was they next to my bed where I was, at first we had like armed response gathers patrolling, but after three days they, they jogged on. And they had this like room, it was like a wet room, but it didn't have any windows and there was a gap underneath the door. So what they was doing is they're putting the chain under the door and then they were sitting outside the door so I could shut it and then I could have a shower and do what I was doing. And obviously you get the, um, the soap dispensers. So I've got this soap dispenser and I'm on here trying to get it all off and I've actually pulled it off. Now, let me tell you, the only thing I can equate to this feeling, it must be when you win the lottery. When you're in custody and you get that cup off, it is the greatest feeling on earth. So now I'm left with the problem. It, he didn't double lock the cuff. So normally they do a little pin in it and it stops the cuff from opening up. He didn't do that. So I've managed to spin it round, put it back on my wrist, but now I've got even more room to get out. So we've come out and I'm, I've got onto the hospital bed and I've got like my knees up with the, the cover going over the top and I've managed to get the cuff off and I've handcuffed it to the side. You know, a prison, um, a hospital bed, it's like bars, isn't it? So I've handcuffed 
the officer to the bars, but he doesn't know it because I've got the cover over me. Now, <laughs> I know where the fire exit is. Now, I've chosen my point to dash, and I, to this day, funniest thing I've ever seen, because I've run out of this hospital, and for six foot, he was on my ass. But as soon as it ran out of chain, it done like a triple somersault in the air. <laughs> The bed come out behind him. He's flat out. I'm out the fire exit. Now, bearing in mind, I've got a drip hanging out my arm and I've got a hospital gown on and I am completely naked other than trainers. <laughs> so now, in my head, it's like at normal. <laughs> so I've managed to come out the hospital. Now, mm. all I've got on me was my mate come up to the hospital. I had a £20 note and I had an eighth of puff. To take him now. All of this is in between my ass cheeks, right? Because <laughs> I've got no pockets. So I've now run up the hospital. I've run up the road, and I never forget it. There was um, a geezer getting into his car, and I've sort of looking back. I can think what he was thinking, and it couldn't have been anything positive. <laughs> I've sort of run up behind him, and I'm like, "You're giving me a lift out of Kingston," and he was like, "I am." <laughs> so you can, you can imagine it in his hospital gown so I got in the back of his car and we started driving out now I'm in the back and I'm like thank fuck I'm out little did I know clever clogs that, uh, that was tied to the bed has got up come out and he commandeered a black taxi and he's now following us and I don't know so as we pulled up to lights I'm like elation I turn around and this prick's here again and I'm like <laughs> So I've ended up getting out of the car. I've ended up hitting the officer again. He's gone over. Then I've had a load of binmen. This is back in the days before the council bins. You had the, the round bins with the lids. They're trying to box me in. So now I'm banging binmen. I've got away from them. Oh, mate. So now I've completely lost everyone again. I'm on my own again. And I thought, right, I could hear helicopters coming. I thought, I've got to plot up. I'm going to have to plot up this. I've gone into a load of back gardens and I found this shed. When you went in the shed, it luckily had a lock on the inside. So I've locked myself in and there was like two um, old mountain bikes leaning up against the side with a bit of tarpaulin. So I've um, sort of got underneath the tarpaulin. I thought, look, as long as I don't move here, they'll fuck off and I can just walk and get a lift. So I'm sitting here with my £20 note and my eight for puff. Can't do fuck all with either one of them. And all of a sudden, this geezer comes to open the garage from the outside and he can't open the door because I've locked it. So I'm in there thinking, fuck, I don't know whether it's old Bill, I don't know who it is. All of a sudden, he's ripped the garage door open. It's like this 65-year-old man. And I'm like, oh, mate. So I can see him through the tarpaulin. And he's walked in and he's going, he's talking to himself. And he's like, oh, that's been moved. That's been moved. And I'm thinking, don't touch the fucking sheet. Don't touch the fucking sheet. And he's grabbed the sheet and pulled it off. Oh. I've jumped up. I must, I'm sweating. My hair's all over the gaff. I'm in his fucking hospital gown. I'm naked. My bollocks are swinging everywhere. And he started rubbing his arm. And I'm like, don't have a fucking heart attack for fuck's sake. I was like, look, I ain't like that. I said, I don't want to hurt you. I said, I've jogged on from these. I just want to go home, mate. He went, don't worry. I used to get in trouble as a kid as well. And I'm like, fucking yes. I'm like, yes. So he's walked me into the house and he had like a, um, a breakfast bar with the stools. So I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, thank fuck for this. The helicopter is circling over the top of us. And uh, the wife walks in. She went, what's going on? And he's sort of explaining it. I'm out of breath, fucked. And uh, she went, oh, let me go and get you something to wear. Now, as she's walked out, I've clocked her, pick up the cordless phone. Mm. And I'm like, fuck sake. So now I've jumped up and I'm saying, I've run to the front door and it's locked. So I'm going, where are the fucking keys? Where are the fucking oh. keys? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. So I thought, fuck this. So I've gone out 
into the shed. I've grabbed one of these fucking bikes I was hiding there. Now, when I say mountain bike, it's like a 1930s thing with the big springs under the seat and the thin tyres. I've come out the front onto the road, two flat tyres, and I'm driving this push bike up the road right now. I swear to God, if I could take a Kodak of the two officers that drew past, <laughs> priceless. They've literally driven past me in the road. I'm in this hospital gown. I'm sweating everywhere. I mean, bollocks are swinging all over the gaff where the gown's coming over one leg. They've literally gone and watched me go past and then instantly spun round on me. Now... We used to do this thing as kids. If you was getting chased by police, if you imagine you've got two houses next to each other, we, where we was young, we was a bit nippy. We get in front, we run into the back garden, but then we jump over the fence and come back out the same way and they carry on going. So it's worked like a gem. I've gone over the back fence, I've nipped through and I've come back out and they're all still going in that direction. Now at this point, I used to be quite small. And my little party trick, if you remember the old black bins, is I could get a black bin, flip it over my head, kneel down and put it flush to the floor and I'm inside the bin. The amount of gathers I lost with this method was was countless. And um, I'm sweating. It's red hot. So I've put the bin over the top of me and when it's got down to my arms to the point where I can't move, I've just fallen over. So now my arms and legs are just wiggling out the bottom of the bin and I can't get out. <laughs> and all of a sudden the police dogs come, the dog is gnawing me fucking feet to death. The police got me out, and the, to be fair, that was that was all right. These uh, these metropolitan police gathers, and he got me in the car. He said, "Let me tell you, that is the funniest fucking thing I have ever seen in my life." He said, "What part of your brain thought you looked normal on that push bike?" I said, "Well, I had to just deal with what I had." Do you know what I mean? And um, I was lucky, really, because I got done for escape from lawful custody. I actually ended up with another fourteen offences just from the escape. Um, and I managed to get all of them dropped. I think I got done for escape from lawful custody and theft of the push bike. Um, and then I bust case on two of the other more serious charges, and then I ended up doing two and a half years out of a five-year sentence. So I was quite lucky in that, that respect. That was lucky, but, wasn't it? But that was, uh, that was an adventure, that one. A bad end to a visit. Yeah, yeah. I slept like a log in prison for the next week. Didn't even come out myself. I was so knackered from it all, but... It was a life experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, your story, a bad end to a visit. A bad end to a visit. So um, I was on a visit in, what was that? I think it was in Belmarsh or Highdown. And for anyone that's been in prison, when you go into a visit or you come off of a visit, they've got like a little wooden box and you stand on the box and you're searched. Now, I can't remember where it was over, but I had a really bad visit. Um and basically, I've got the ump, I've cut the visit short, and I've come back up. Now, in my head, all I want to do is get back to my cell and be left alone to deal mentally with what's gone on. And I've come back up, and this room that you stand in is like a phone box. It's tiny. And I've got these two officers, and he said, I'm strip searching you. Fuck that, put me back to the cell. No, we're going to strip search you. I said, it's not happening. Now, at this point, I've been involved in a lot of MMA, so I know how to look after myself. And especially in a confined space where people haven't got an, a lot of room to move about, that's where your MMA comes in and your jiu-jitsu. Now, this geezer decided to grab me around my neck. So he's basically got front kicked and he's sort of slid out the door. And they've set the alarm off. But because this room is so small and there was an officer, his name was um, Mr. Sharp. He'll hate me for saying this story, but his name was Mr. Sharp. He was, to be fair, he was a nice fella. Um, he is an absolute unit of an officer. And um, they're running. I can hear them coming, but they can only come through the door one at a time. So as they're coming through, I'm laying them out. 
So after about five minutes, there's like a pile of screws outside the front door. And then I had the governor come, this woman governor. She went, calm the fuck down. Because they couldn't get in the room to physically grab me. So I ended up giving up and walking out. As soon as I walked through the door, they battered me. And um, I got stripped. I got put in a strip cell. And uh, luckily, the um, the governor took pity on me. And she was like, look, there's going to be outside charges for the officers for the assaults. And I was like, all right, not a fucking problem. I thought, I've just got five years. I couldn't give a fuck anyway. And um, I'll never forget it. The officer that come to uh, to get me from the wing, because when the police turn up, they ring across and then they produce you down at reception. She said, I've been in the prison service for 30 years. She said, I have never in all of my years ever seen armed police come into a prison with their guns to escort a prisoner out. And we, um, I got down there and they're all here like this with a capsule and I'm like, for fuck. So like, who am I? Like, when I've been Laden or something. And uh, I got taken to the local police station and they was even in the fucking interview room with me. So I was sitting there trying to give an account and all I've got is, is armed police with stun guns and everything standing around me. And they said, you're going to tell us what else? I said, listen, first and foremost, I want to tell the truth. I said, I'll never touch no one. And he was like, we've got officers with all these injuries. You put one of their knees out. There's another one with like, a concussion and all this. And I was like, I never touched no one. I said, they jumped me. I defended myself. And somehow they dropped it. I think wow. I, had four, I had four counts of ABH and I managed to get the whole lot thrown out. Wow. And, um, and then I ended up getting released about a year or something later. But, um, but yeah, that was an experience. What got you interested in MMA? It was just something to focus on. I suffered from... Well, I thought I had ADHD as a kid and it turned out to be something else, another um, uh, another brain condition that I've sort of managed over the years. But it makes me extremely hyperactive. Um, and I find it, once I lose my temper, a lot of people, if they lose their temper, it's kind of a gradual process. With me, it's instant. I sort of go from one to ten and there's no in-between. Um, and as a result of that, I normally take things to the extreme quicker than someone that's normal. Uh, but I've come to manage it over the years. And a lot of it, believe it or not, was with weightlifting originally. Um, and then someone introduced me to MMA. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. it. It was the discipline. It was the the regime of eating and being healthy and training. And then you got the chance to go in front of 2,000 people and knock someone out. And you weren't getting nicked for it. it <laughs> I couldn't think of anything better. So, um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I'd done it up until about, it must have been about 2,000 and... 10 between 2010 2015 um but yeah i had a lot of fights and i really enjoyed it i did really enjoy it as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming i wish i had used indeed if you need to hire you need indeed Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When the gates closed, never look back. Yeah. Um, 
and this is a thing that it, preferably for the older uh, criminals but there was always this saying that the day you leave prison and you walk out the gates if you turn around and look at the gates it was always destined that you would return it was kind of like walking over three drains instead of two one of them turnouts and um yeah, see, I, on the last one, I left and I, I never looked back. And I, I normally did. You normally have a little look around outside. But I came out and I never looked back on that one occasion. And to be fair to this day, I've never looked back since. Um, but it's taken a long time to sort of cross over from one world to a legitimate one. And it is, it's very, very difficult. Um, and the, the major problem I face is that I could go the next 30 years and never commit another criminal offence. But you try and convince the police that you're not doing nothing, and it's 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 very difficult. But I've I've made a lot of headway. I mean, there's a lot of positive things going on with the filming and the TV stuff. Um, I've got a record label that's going to be being launched soon, so there, there's a lot of positive stuff going on. Um, and on top of that is, I was always sick to death of people coming out and doing stuff for financial gain, and it was always like I'm going to do this to get me noticed. And I've never people have always known me over the years before I'd done any of this. I was, I was always known in a lot of areas. Um, and for me, the, the, the problem that we face in the UK now is that there's not enough education for kids, there's not enough role models for kids, and there's not enough punishment suitable for kids that are in place now to try and take them off of that path. So, again, it's, I don't charge for it, I don't get paid for it, it's all out of my own spare time, and me and Jamie have been up and down to schools, and I find it extremely rewarding. Um... And on my Facebook page, I posted recently, there was a, a little boy in this school. It was up by um, Norwich. And uh, this kid had been abused. He had really been... He was fucking nine years old. And he'd had a worse life than I had at 37. And um, he was so disruptive. Even when we arrived, it's like it's like the PRU. It's like the, for the worst of the worst, pupils that can't be in a mainstream school anymore. And they warned us before we started giving the talk that he would be the one. To, to kick off and from the minute I opened my mouth he didn't move he was engrossed and it really hit home the things I was saying and a lot of the mentality of kids now especially with all the drugs that are going on and the county line stuff a lot of people get in their head that once you're attached to a group that group will protect you but what the problem is, is they don't look far enough ahead to realise that once you upset that group they're then against you and the only people you got to, to protect you then are the police they're, they're, they're your last stand. And when you're drumming home to them, how easy it is for the door to come off, your mum and dad to be wrapped up, and for, for them to do whatever they want to you, I said, the police ain't going to be there to help you. It, it takes seconds. And it, it really hit home with this kid, and he actually wrote a letter. And he's only like eight or nine, bless him. And he wrote a letter and thanking me and saying it's made a massive change in his life. And the teachers that I still stay in contact with are saying he's come on leaps and bounds, he's doing his work. And it's just the communication. It's giving them the information they need to make the decisions in life. And I don't think there's a, enough of it now. A lot of young people watching this are going to want you to go to their school when it reopens. Yeah. How do they get in contact with you? Today? We're going to have a description box below this video yeah. of all of your information. Yeah. What's your preferred method of uh, I'm on Facebook. So Tony Gooch on Facebook. Um, I won't be able to add you because uh, it's absolutely rammed with um, with friends. But you can always message me, um, message me your school details. Um, a lot of them have done it that way. Um, and then I will put them in touch with Jamie um, and then he will make the arrangements and we'd be more than happy to come and give a talk at your school. What was the point that made you 
not want to go back to the lifestyle? My kids, it's, I've done so much bad stuff in my life. And at the same time, I've always tried to be or attempted to be a nice person. I've never been a bully. I despise bullies. I don't like it at all. But I think now for my kids moving forward, I don't want them to get to 15 years old and my dad's in prison doing 20 years. It's I want to be the best dad I can be for my daughter and for my son, and that's 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 what keeps me on the right track at the moment. Um, and it's the reward of helping these kids. I mean, if I went to a hundred schools and you only got through to one or two of them kids, and they went on to be very productive in their adult lives from being terrorways as kids, it's worth it. You're doing something to help uh, to put it back in. I've done so much taking in my life. It's nice to give something back. Um, and for me, the way the country is now, we're we're going downhill at such a rapid rate now. I mean, the value on human life is gone. The criminal code has gone. The morals in young individuals now, and they're getting younger and younger and younger, they're gone. And I think it, it needs someone with that experience to tell them how it is. Not to pussyfoot around the question, not to keep telling the child, if you keep doing this, you're going to end. It don't fucking work. They need to be told in a way that they understand and that they understand the consequences of their actions. And that's that's what I'm doing. So young people watching this may be tempted into the drugs lifestyle. Yeah. What do you say to them? Sit down, get a bit of paper, work out what you're going to earn off of each batch that you sell then go onto the government websites to the uh, the sentencing guidelines and you have a look at the sentence you're going to get for your three ounces of coke and then you divide the days you're going to do in prison to the money you're going to earn. You're earning less than someone at McDonald's, but yet it will be that same individual that goes, fucking McDonald's would do. I ain't working there. But yet it's that geezer in McDonald's by the time you get out. He's now a manager at McDonald's and he's now left McDonald's and he's a manager in the Ritz Hotel and he's earning 40, 50 grand a year and he's driving around in a nice car and he's got a mortgage. And what have you fucking got? You've got your mentality of, I'm going to go back to shotting and fucking earn a fortune. It's like fucking Del Boy and Rodney. You know, this time next year we'll be millionaires. It ain't going to fucking happen. <laughs> let me tell you, I've met some of the biggest criminals in this country and I can count on one fucking hand how many of them have made a fortune out of it. And even them get nothing but grief. And it'll be till the day they die. So it ain't worth it. It's The odds are stacked against you. Go and do the lottery. Go and do something else. Because it, it ain't a life. And the danger you're putting your family in, and this is another thing that is very overlooked, you get clever clogs at 13, 14. Oh, I'm only dealing a bit of weed. I'm only doing that. I'm not going to get in trouble. And then all of a sudden they get nicked. And this is just one scenario. You get nicked. And then by pure coincidence, the geezer you get your gear off gets raided. Have a guess what? You're a grass. Now they're going to come for you. And where do you live? At your mum and dad's house. Are you going to get a petrol bomb through the window? Are they going to take the door off? Are they gonna, is your mum and dad going to watch you being dragged out and thrown in the boot of a motor? It happens. And it happens a lot. It happens a lot more than what the police want to admit. And this is the message you need to get out into these young individuals now is that the lifestyle you're looking to achieve is so far out of your grasp, it's just not worth it. There's no longevity in it. You'll have the best six months of your life and then you'll do five years in prison. And it's just, I'd rather just live a nice, normal life and not have to look over my shoulder every five minutes.
there's a huge price to pay, so don't get gangsteritis, kids. And nah. keep, keep your day jobs, folks. Keep your day. I'm not being funny. The, the, the jobs that the kids can get these days with the apprenticeships and stuff that are available, you can earn decent fucking money now. It's, it's, it's not out of any kid's grasp to knuckle down at school, to go to college, to get, and it's even easier now because when I was at school, you left when you were 16. Now it's 18 because they leave school and have to go and do sixth form. So the opportunities are there for them to educate themselves. You don't want to be going and kicking the door off and risking getting shot, risking getting stabbed for a reward you don't even know is there. It's pointless. But if you put your, you, you apply yourself, you can be earning 40, 50 grand a year. Tony, you've, st- you've told your stories very well. Thank you for coming on. Is there anything you want to say in conclusion to the people watching this? No, it's just, obviously the message is, is that it doesn't work. I've tried it. I could have carried on. I could still be doing it to this day. But I've, I've learned through my own mistakes now that there is no longevity in crime. Um, you will end up going to prison. It's not a case of if, it's when. You will get caught. You have to get lucky every single time you do something wrong. The police have to get lucky once. And have you got a book or a movie coming? I'm thinking about starting a book. Um, don't think we're at the movie stage yet, but I'm hoping so at some point because I think it'll be good. Um, see that escape scene on the you, camera. Oh, it'd be brilliant. So anyone that makes movies that want to ring me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, nice. Um, the, the future is looking promising for me. It really is. Fantastic. All right. Thank you for watching this. Hope you've enjoyed it. Please let us know in the comments. Huge thank you to all people who've subbed. If you've not subbed yet, subscription logo is on the bottom corner of the video. Huge thank you to all people who've donated. PayPal, Patreon, all those links are down there. So we can record these videos in a proper studio with a sound engineer and a cameraman. And keep your guest suggestions coming. All right, brother, give me a hug, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, cheers. Excellent, Tony. Yeah, thank you. Lovely job, As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.